Hello, everybody, and welcome to this In Conversation episode where we're talking science and art, specifically dance and music, uh, and how art and science are the same, uh, how you can use art, music, dance to discuss science, be inspired, all of these things. It was a really great conversation, and I was joined by Lucy Rupert, the founder. Uh, artistic director, choreographer, and performer with Blue Ceiling Dance, and Matt Russo, who is a lecturer at the University of Toronto in astrophysics, uh, as well as the director of System Sounds. So, we, the, the two of them reached out to the show to discuss Blue Ceiling Dance, um, their latest project, which is called 8 Minutes and 17 Seconds, and it's inspired by the 8 minutes and 17 seconds that it takes light to travel from the sun to the earth. Uh, the show ran last week, um, but we discussed sort of um, both of them, uh, their process behind the art and science that they do, the motivations for doing it, what sorts of projects they're into, um, we discussed a little space science. Um, and it was just really, really great conversation. They're both really interesting people, um, inspirational in a way. If you wanna, if you wanna, if you're someone who does science and, and thinks that, or has been told that science and art don't mix, these are, are great people to follow, check out, see their work because they really show how much the two actually have in common and how interesting um, the pieces can be that come out of it. So I really, really want to thank them for coming on the show, for reaching out. Um, I, like I said, I just I really enjoyed talking to them. Uh, we connected over Skype, and I will leave it at that. And at the end of the episode, we'll have all of this sort of um, Twitter details, uh, websites, and all that for you. But as always, it's in the show description. It's on our social media, and it's on our website. So without droning on too much longer here is my conversation with lucy rupert and matt russo so thank you both for reaching out thanks for coming on the show really appreciate it um and i'm excited to talk to you both because when i was in grad school we were always looking at doing science communication, science outreach projects. And this is what you guys are involved in. And I think you've tackled one of the areas that I, to me always seemed like the biggest challenge, which was unifying, you know, a real artistic form like music and dance with science. Um, so we'll get to the specific project that you guys have collaborated on, the, the dance um, titled Eight Minutes and 17 Seconds. But first, I'd like to ask you, Lucy, um, if I'm if I understand correctly, you founded Blue Ceiling Dance. Yes. And it seems like it's you, you kind of had the idea to merge dance and art and science right from the get from, right from the get go. It was pretty early. Uh, I, f I founded the company in 2004, and I think the first project I started to work on that brought together ideas from science uh, with dance was in 2005 and sometimes I lose sight of that it feels like it's a more recent thing but it really was one of my first projects exploring and celebrating the uh, 100th anniversary of Einstein's theory of relativity um, there was an international call for artists to make work inspired by that and I plunged in and that was sort of the big awakening as to the the overlap between scientific processes and the way artists go into their own processes and it's just sort of been unfurling and evolving since then cool so what did you that what did you discover then about the the similarities between scientific processes and artistic um, processes well i i can't remember where i read it but there was one scientist who described the scientific process as being uh saturate incubate illuminate verify. And this scientist went on to say that artists do a similar thing, but we don't verify. Artists don't verify their work. And I thought, 
Oh, well, we absolutely do, because anytime you put your art out into the public, mm-hmm. hey, that's in a sense verifying. It's different from, obviously, from the way a scientist uh, verifies their work. Um, that was one of the big things um, that jumped out for me. Uh, the other was just the, the notion of the thought experiment. And I hadn't really heard about that because I'd been sort of steered away from the sciences when I was uh, younger um, because I was artistic and there was like this this thought in the education system that you sort of do the, if you're going to be an artist, you're going to do the bare minimum in the sciences and maths, even though I did very well in those in school. So I didn't know about thought experiments. And again, I went, well, that's what we do as artists. We try to imagine a solution to a problem. And then as dancers, we physicalize that. And I just immediately felt a connection to that way of tackling a problem or solving a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of like the idea of, you know, the verifying of art is putting it in front of the audience, because if, mm-hmm. if there is no audience, then, you know, there is no sort of, I mean, you can do art for yourself, obviously, but yeah. putting it in front of an audience gives you that feedback. It's almost like the peer review process, you know, you yeah. have to let your peers see it and let people comment on it and you can incorporate that feedback or not. Yeah. Uh, a friend that's... of mine also said that, oh, sorry, a friend of mine also said that he, the, the thing about being a performing artist is that you wind up having to alter your hypothesis on the fly right <laughs> on stage. You have to, because you feel the, you feel the verification process yeah. happening. So you, you have to sort of adapt in the moment. Kind of occurs in real time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and so then, Matt, I'll jump over to you for a second because, so you had formal training in in science from my understanding you're a lecturer uh, at the university of toronto correct that's right yeah formal training in science and in music oh okay great so why don't you yeah elaborate a little bit on your background and and where you feel the the need to bring science and and art together yeah so music and astronomy were were two of my passions since i was very young but uh as i had the same impression that lucy did that you really just had one that's the way the academic system was set up. And so all through my teens and then I guess at the end of high school, I was kind of struggling with that decision of which which path to take. And I just couldn't decide between the two because they just seemed like you needed both uh, perspectives to, you know, to enjoy life and to, to be a functional uh, observer <laughs> and participant in the universe. And so I, um, I started with a music degree, but I took physics courses on the side. And then when I finished that, I just had to, to do the opposite. I, I did my astrophysics degree and I, I played in the band on the side. Um, but that whole time, I, I still kept them separate. I didn't even think uh, of combining them or using them in the same uh, as the same vehicle until uh, about two years ago when uh, there, there was a discovery of a, a very musical planetary system called TRAPPIST-1. And so I, I realized I could actually convert that solar system into music and since then, it's kind of opened the doors of how do we communicate the patterns of astronomy through sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I, I'm, it's great to hear, you know, that, that both of you sort of fought against that, uh, that, that the system of schooling where it is like, if you're going to do science, you can't do art. And if you're going to be an art, you can't do science. Because it's something that I also felt uh, for a long time. I was, you know, my degrees of, were in biology but always played music myself on the side as well. Never really combined the two per se, Um, but it's just, it was one of those things that was like, it was such a great hobby. And I feel like as scientists, especially myself going through graduate school, there wasn't really a lot of encouragement for, you know, extra hobbies or, um, you know, an artistic side, but Lucy, kind of what you were saying at the beginning too, is that there is a lot of over overlap, creativity and problem solving being another one. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's really, really, really quite interesting. And then Matt, I wanted to ask you too specifically, and Lucy, feel free to jump in and comment at any time. Both of you, you. I don't have to direct <laughs> questions <laughs> to both of you. We can, we can all chat here together. Um, but I'm interested in the specific melding of, you know, sort of astrophysics, astronomy, 
with music and then with dance because it does seem to me like there's like if you were going to pick one science to sort of try and do mix with these artistic forms it does feel like the one that you would that you would use if that makes sense i don't know if that's you know you have the movement of planets you have you know a, a numerical language kind of behind both music and astronomy do you guys feel that is that was that a connection that you felt right away or yeah in retrospect it's a it's a, a very obvious thing to do it kind of brings the project full circle because a lot of the time what i'm starting with is the, the literal motions of of planets and planetary objects and it's cycles and rhythms that are happening uh, on vast scales and you know all different time scales um, i convert that into oscillations of sound waves but of course, there's a natural connection between the, the motion of, of sound with the body, and it mm -hmm. kind of helps. It's just a way to, the music is kind of like an intermediary to translate the, to connect the, the motion of planetary objects to, uh, to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know this, uh, when I started working on this project, uh, some of the dancers that I worked with were a little bit, uh, not necessarily confused, but um, taken aback by some of the imagery that was coming from the research I'd done on in this area of astrophysics and and how light behaves in space as it moves from the sun to the earth. And at first, there was a, there were a lot of sort of blank faces trying to wrap their brains around how do I try to embody these things, but once we actually got going, you know, it's always the point of giving a proposal to the dancers, let's try to do this, and we're standing around. As soon as they start moving, it became really clear the laws that we're just trying to embody the natural laws of the universe, which our bodies actually obey, but we're mm -hmm. putting it in this imagery that's sort of a huge scale to, to imagine. And that can be a little overwhelming at first, but then you just get down to like the, the particulars of it and you realize that cliche that is going around a lot, that we're all made of the same stuff. We're all made of stardust. We're all made of the same basic elements. So it's really just a matter of, of taking it in. And, and the other thing that um, I find particularly compelling is that Science, and, science and, and art are both just trying to describe our experience of reality. Mm -hmm. and, and both of those are human-generated things. So the language that comes out of science is so compelling to me. So sometimes we just talk about that in, in rehearsal. We'd say, just look at the language that scientists have, have created to describe this. To take that in. It's human. And so what we actually are trying to do is embody these natural laws of the universe, but we're actually trying to embody the humanity that has created it, created these descriptions. It, I sometimes think of choreography and dancing as being another form of translation. It's like translating a really great poem into a different language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's something that like, yeah, we, we tend to think of science as a really dispassionate or like cold pursuit, right? And it even kind of gets, ingrained in you as you're going through graduate school and stuff like I maybe I'm making my graduate school experience sound <laughs> terrible but it, it really wasn't I did I did really enjoy it and I was fortunate enough that we I was part of a program that really emphasized you know science outreach and stuff so we were able to sort of scratch a creative muscle a little bit but it it, it makes a lot of sense that when you're talking about like translation and it's it's two ways of describing the world that and I think when you when you actually sit down and and talk with scientists, even if they don't realize how artistic or creative their endeavor is, when you get them talking about their their research or something they're passionate about, you see that that life come out into it. So I think it's really neat that you can find in dance sort of you can kind of capture that sort of passion that's maybe written in a in a in a way. I mean, if we've read read scientific papers. I mean, you were just talking about how you like the language. I'm always railing against the language of scientific <laughs> papers being like, you guys, we could be a little more creative here, you know? But that's really neat. Um, 
So then why don't we, why don't you describe exactly the project that you have on the go now, this eight minutes, 17 seconds, and sort of how you guys came up with it, what the, what the history behind it was, and what, what the theme is. What does eight minutes, 17 seconds, what is that? What does it represent? Well, it's the length of time it takes sunlight to travel from the sun to earth. And I found that a compelling starting point because it's a kind of awkward amount of time in terms of our human experience. It's not long enough to do to do a whole lot, but it's not so short that you just do like that one important thing that takes three seconds and then you've done it. Um, so tr what I've done is, is uh, split an evening of dance into sort of eight sections and each section is approximately eight minutes and 17 seconds long and looks at sunlight, um, sunlight in space, not on earth. Not interested in, in doing that just yet. Um, <laughs> uh, from different perspectives, uh, just looking at the, the fact that sunlight is it's also a very destructive force. Uh, the whole wave particle, particle piloted, no, wave piloted by a particle, like all these different uh, ways of describing how light behaves, uh, all of those things. And then uh, we broke it up into a different assortment of, of dancers and collaborators. Uh, there's co-creators from a choreographic perspective. There are two composers who I, I gave them the theme and asked them to make some music. And then I, in the course of working on this project, I've interviewed a lot of scientists. And one of, actually, one of the dancers in my company uh, discovered Matt and suggested that I contact him and, and interview him. And so that happened. I think you were the third scientist that I interviewed in my process. Mm -hmm. And hearing his sounds, this what he had made, I just, I felt incredibly moved by it. And then we were lucky enough that he let us use some of the music that he had created from the Trappist. Oh, I'm not sure actually the one that we're using, is if it's it, from the Trappist. It's, is it Black Widow? It's Black it's Widow. The, yeah. Okay, good. Phew. <laughs> um, so yeah, you did some editing, some beautiful editing for us to make it eight minutes and seventeen seconds long. Um, so it was a, it was a, again a different model of collaboration. Um, this whole project has about eighteen people working on it, which is huge for my company. I'm a project by project company, so usually it's I'm looking at teams of five or six people. Um, but this has been really special because there's been all these different models of, of creation and collaboration as well as uh, from, from the arts field as well as from the scientific field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so, Matt, why don't you describe then the music that they that they took in this Trappist because I, I, I was perusing through the System Sounds website and I came across the, the Trappist um, part where it gave these rings of resonating sound like I didn't totally understand it all so maybe we could even just you could I was even just really curious about Trappist itself because it, I think you mentioned that it it might be a candidate to look for life yeah, in the right. universe yeah yeah so uh so Trappist one is the most interesting solar system we've ever found we know the most about it aside from our own uh, and it happens to be the most musical solar system so it's it's very close and there are seven Earth-sized planets in it. And the reason why it's a, it's a prime candidate in the search for life is that there are at least three that are in the, the Goldilocks zone, so the temperatures mm -hmm. would be right for liquid water. And it's close enough that we'll, we can actually, in the future, detect things like uh, what their atmospheres are made of, which is the big unknown in terms of uh, habitability of exoplanets. And usually you can't measure their atmospheres. In this case, we have a chance. Hmm. Um, but the musical side of it is that these seven planets have, they're all really close together. They're huddled around a really small star, really close together. So they affect each other and they've essentially communicated with each other through, through gravity to tune themselves into a musical configuration. So they've kind of adjusted their orbits so that they're locked in a fixed repeating rhythm. And whenever you have a simple fixed repeating rhythm, you could also speed it up and experience it as musical pitches. And I 
the rhythms are simple enough, the pitches will be harmonious. Hmm. So that's what happened with Trappist One that got this whole uh, sonification project started. Right, and so then from there you took those pitches and created a song, or do you just sort of transpose them, I guess, exactly how they are occurring in space? Or do you well, manipulate it a little bit, or how does yeah, that... Yeah, it's, it's always an interesting balance of the two, because you want the system to speak for itself, right? but you also want to communicate in a human form. And so in this case, there's no literal sound we can hear from it, because it's 39 light years away across the vacuum of space. And the sounds it would make would be below our human hearing range. So there has to be some manipulation. And in this case, uh, for Trappist 1, we used a piano sound because we wanted something familiar. So we, we gave it the sounds, but the pitches and the rhythms are being determined by the system. So we gave it the, the quality of sounds, but we let the solar system, uh, the solar system's natural rhythms and harmony dictate the music. Wow. Wow. Really cool. Really cool. It's amazing to think that there is like, like, a, and I guess this is a connection of where math, you know, sort of comes in and it kind of governs. It's this, another language that we use to sort of make sense of both music and then also the natural world. So it's just, it's kind of mind blowing to sit there and think that you could just see these occurrences in the universe and then, you know, just assign the, the right notes to it. And you would have, you know, the sound or the song of the universe. It's actually quite a... Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very special thing because you can't do that with most solar systems. Mm -hmm. Because most solar systems aren't actually in tune. So you could do it, it would just <laughs> sound like garbage. Like our system. Our solar system yeah. actually is pleasing at all. But something, something special happened with that solar system. Right. And so there's little bits of, of real musicality in the universe. You just have to know what to look for. Right. Um, can I segue into talking about the Black Widow Pulsar? The of course, yeah. Piece for yeah, tonight. So th in that case, we're, we're translating a pulsar, which is a, a rapidly spinning neutron star, into music. And I, I found an interesting piece to work on because... Pulsars themselves are extremely regular objects. They're spinning at a very fixed rate. You could set your watch to them. So there's this very, very clean uh, periodicity. I think this one's spinning about 600 times per second. Oop. But in this case, that's sending out a beam from the star, which is the actual pulsar beam that we measure the flashes of. And it's going through a kind of random clumpy uh, field of gas. It's, it's actually blowing gas off its neighbor, destroying it. But there's all this randomness that magnifies the really pure signal. And so it's kind of like this layering thing where you have a, a really pure tone, but it's getting amplified in this very random and jagged way, mm -hmm. which I thought would be interesting to see someone physicalize that because it's, uh, it's not predictable, really. Mm -hmm. it's, it's got its own kind of, kind of like a Morse code type thing because of that randomness. Okay, yeah. And on top of that, we we kind of arranged those patterns into a composition. So we added a bit more structure on top of that, uh, the, the natural randomness of the system. So I thought it would be a, a very interesting challenge for a person to try to act out because there's kind of competing layers of order and chaos. So you, so you found the, the, the hardest one to dance to and gave them that. <laughs> it it yeah. might just be, yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, uh, the music is a solo that I have to perform <laughs> that was created by another choreographer named Karen Kaja. Uh, she fell in love with this sound when she was developing the solo for me. So it's, I'm the one who has to deal with that. <laughs> it's actually, Sorry, it's actually quite a dizzying score to work to. Um, because you get you can get really lost in it and there's moments uh some of the choreography is quite dizzying too and there's some lighting situations that i'm dealing with in the actual space that make it hard for me to see <laughs> um and the music sometimes i don't know where i am i don't know if i am gone twice as fast as i 
did the last time. I don't know if I'm going to run out of music or if there's going to be <laughs> three minutes of music left. Um, but that is a really interesting, uh, it's an interesting challenge. And the end result is usually that I'm quite consistent with timing, but there's always a slight panic inside going, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know where I am in the music. I'm kind of glad to hear that actually, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> that was a, um, it is a very unsettling piece and it has it has a bit of structure but there's no clear um kind of beginning and end or there's no clear signposts within it it's kind of like um you've got this endless kind of orbit that cycles yeah. but you, it's not really clear where you are in the cycle where it begins and where it ends it's true yeah the guy there are the signposts where i'm like oh there's that sound again but is that the fifth time I've heard it or the 16th or I don't know because depending on where I am in space and what where I am in the choreography uh, my ability to hear every detail is is different it's so it's uh, it, yeah it's fun <laughs> yeah it sounds exciting really and again it's like you know this idea, like the, the 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 piece of music you're describing, you know, not having a beginning and an end again, that kind of just makes you think of the universe as well. I mean, we we understand that there was a beginning, as far as we know, the Big Bang, you know, but then there's like this infinite space in which all these things are occurring. So it's just, you know, I'm even right now kind of thinking in my head of, you know, dancers like embodying that, like trying to get that that image or those feelings across. So Maybe this is a naive question because, you know, dance isn't really my art form. Um, but like, is what is it exactly that you when you're in when you're, you know, interpreting this eight minute, 17 seconds in dance? Is it the idea of you're trying to get a concept across or a feeling or an appreciation for, you know, the these sort of big questions that I've kind of toyed around with about the universe? Is it everything? What what What's sort of your motivation behind it? Definitely a feeling. That's always the most important thing to me. I think I often, I start from really clear ideas or concepts, but I'm definitely not a conceptual artist, and at least in the way that that sort of lands in the performing arts in North America. I really want the feeling. Uh, mm -hmm. That's for me there's no there's no right way to see it uh, i think contemporary dance uh, at least in in north america and toronto in particular it's tough because audiences tend to want to feel like they can get it and they mm -hmm. shy away from contemporary dance contemporary art if they think they're not going to get it in some <laughs> some way yeah what's the point always, what am yeah, i seeing exactly. yeah <laughs> yeah it, am i right am i yeah. did i get it right yeah um, <laughs> And I think what I what I really am interested in doing is sort of well we talked about this when when we had our interview about how certain art forms can sort of bypass the the brain a little bit or like that the analytic brain and go sort of straight to a more uh, your instincts and your gut or your animal brain mm -hmm, in a mm -hmm. way and there's real value to in doing that um, for the public like to get uh, a critical mass of people feeling from their instincts, not from an analytic mind, um, because I think it opens up the the self. The, it opens people up to being more compassionate and imaginative. And uh, what we need, I think we need sort of all over the place uh, in the world right now is a lot of creative problem solving. Mm -hmm. And sort of deeper motivation for me is also that I think uh, the sciences and the arts, especially the the sort of the research, um, uh, the research science and and the more contemporary arts suffer from uh, the control of funding, public funding, which is mm -hmm. great, but it's not so great when you get particularly conservative uh, politicians that start to uh, limit or reduce access and it, it's really important that i think that we team up that science and art actually get together because uh, my g taking on this concept for uh, a work of art 
uh, gives a sort of legitimacy to to contemporary dance for a certain crowd of people, even friends of mine, they're like, I don't know what you do, Lucy. It's really confusing, but they want to come see this show because they understand something about cosmology and astrophysics, not not at a professional level, but they, they say, oh, yeah. you're doing something. I'm going to understand this piece. And I also think the reverse is possible that, that uh, dance and music can actually help science communicate with a broader audience as well. Um, course we don't dance from that perspective that's sort of like an underlying philosophy for the for my company at least right now mm -hmm. but mostly the dancers are just trying to get in there and and say okay if i'm there's a there's a duet for instance where the two dancers are wave and particle and anytime they actually make eye contact they're supposed to switch states <laughs> so really they and and they're it's a it's a crazy full throttle eight minutes and 17 seconds of dancing for them. So really, they're just trying to hang on to those concepts and make it to the end of this duet that they do. And But I think that for the audience, what they're seeing is two human beings trying to do some really impossible tasks with incredible dexterity. And mm -hmm. that's inspiring. And mm -hmm. that's that's possible because our, our bodies are nimble, our brains are nimble. It's all creative problem solving. Mm hmm. Yeah, I want to make touch on the the just a little bit of the funding thing that you mentioned, because and maybe Matt, you can jump in on this being that you're in the university environment. But it is um, I've always said that, you know, admit you some of the ideas of creativity and whatnot that you were just describing that, you know, science. If you try and fund it as like a results based thing, like what is what is going to be the the quickest technology that we can bring to market, et cetera, something like this, rather than looking at it as like, no, what let's sort of explore broadly um, a bunch of different topics just for the sake of generating knowledge or just for the sake of doing art would be the comparison, you know, and then you never know what you're going to find in there. So you need that sort of basic research. So it's, it was interesting to hear that, you know, that you kind of made that connection in, in the two fields. Would it, any feelings or thoughts on this, Matt, coming from the university? Yeah, well, luckily, my field is astrophysics. And so uh, compared to other fields, that field is is really all about basic research and curiosity. And so <laughs> That's true, right? Applications yeah. are really just, here's something we don't understand yet. I have an idea that might shed some light on it. Give me money to you know, rent a telescope to try mm -hmm. to solve this mystery. And so astronomers kind of have a, a reputation of of not caring at all about you know practical applications and technology and uh, and making money off discoveries or anything like that, we, they kind of get to to live in a bit of a bubble that way, um, and uh, they can they get criticized for it sometimes for, for not being connected <laughs> to society so much. But um, uh, I, yeah, I was lucky to be part of that. So while I was doing my research, um, I didn't have to think about things like that. I really could I could really just mm -hmm. focus on the, the astrophysical problem I was solving. Right. With but it's, yeah, no, I was just going to say it's, you're, yeah, you're right. Like it's the one field where it's kind of like discovery for the sake of discovery. But it's also the one field that people seem to sort of accept that for, you know, like everyone, everybody loves space, you know, yeah. now that I've moved from academics into science journalism and, and science communication stuff, that's the one thing I've noticed is everybody loves space. Space and the brain. These are the two things that, like, everybody loves. Um, and I wonder, like, you know, not to, I guess, well, yeah, let's maybe go a little deep philosophical whatever here. Um, do you think that part of that is just, you know, we've as humans, we've always kind of had the urge to, like, go out and whether it was cross the oceans or spread out or something else. And then that this is, you know, as Star Trek says, the, the final frontier. Is that, uh, do you feel like that's why people maybe you know, get into it or sort of appreciate it or, you know, accept it that we're going to have to just throw some money at this because we all want to know the answers? Uh, yeah, de I definitely think there's some uh, a natural element of exploration in our, in our species. Can't really help it. Um, 
And it, with astronomy in particular, it's something that everybody had access to until until recently until light pollution kind of took over but historically, <laughs> you know every civilization that was their um that was their screen their movie screen every single night right clear. yeah and every single civilization felt an urge to explain what they were seeing and to connect it to their their daily lives so luckily as a as an astronomy uh, communicator i get to tap into that because i know there's a bit of that in everybody you just have to kind of um tap into that more emotional side of wonder that everyone has right yeah and i think that that's again thinking thinking of some of the things that you were saying lucy about like um accessing a feeling with your piece i mean i think that this is something again that maybe scientists themselves don't realize but you know you hear some of the great um communicators whether it's carl sagan or whoever you know when they're talking about that moment where you realize something about the universe or where you realize that you don't know something about the universe. That for me is always when you access that, that feeling is when it's like, holy, you know, there's something out there that we don't quite understand, but it could mean something revolutionary. Is this again, like something that you try and bring into the art or is it just inevitably there? Because that's, that's the feeling that accompanies this stuff. I think it's yeah. I think it's it's both. I definitely endeavor to try to put that, but it's where I why I do this because I want to understand the universe. I I was raised by my parents are both atheists, so I didn't I don't have a, a religious uh, infrastructure in me that helps me cope with you know the existential woes. <laughs> <laughs> But the but learning about the universe definitely or trying to learn about the universe. It's not even having the facts. It's the quest to try to understand mm-hmm. uh, what what Matt does and what uh, you know. I've interviewed some biologists, some neurologists, like what uh, trying to understand what the those people do and what they're studying creates a a real sense of of purpose and belonging and also a bit of liberation from taking myself too seriously or taking what I'm doing too seriously mm-hmm. in the sense of like, oh, I did that wrong, that's bad. That's It's just, you know, my place in the universe is so tiny. So all I can do is just offer my best to the world and, and that that's enough, you know? It's okay if, if uh, a piece of art I make isn't the most spectacular thing ever. It's okay if I fall on stage. It's okay, you know, it really doesn't matter in the big picture, but it's the trying that brings us all together, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's really cool that you've kind of found a way to, uh, you know, keep learning. You know, you're using your, your medium, your career, what you do, what you're passionate about, but then finding a way to say, well, how can I also keep learning about interesting things and connect with scientists and do stuff. That's really exciting, you know, and I think for people to hear maybe that are listening to this that, you know, want to do that or have an interest in science or vice versa, you know, the scientists that's interested in, in art. For sure. I, I really have to credit um, uh, one of my professors when uh, I went to the University of Toronto and did a master's degree in history. Uh, that had very little to do with dance. It had a bit to do with the arts, but it was really comparative cultural history in the early 20th century. And I had one magnificent professor named Thomas Lehusen, and I thought I wanted to go on and do my PhD and continue a professional dance career at the same time. I was really ambitious. <laughs> uh, but I, I encountered some some uh, some of the, the nastier side of academia in, in the form of competition between professors and uh, my thesis advisor and some other professor didn't get along and so something have something happened to publicly humiliate me to make my advisor look bad and mm-hmm. I doubted my ability to cope with that right and my 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 thesis advisor Thomas Lehusen said to me he said Lucy if you just want to learn more go out into the world and learn more make your art about the things that you want to learn about and just do that and you'll that that's more valuable than 
staying here and fighting through this PhD program that might break your spirit or your body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and he was right. He was so right. I think about him all the time when I'm creating because I think I, uh, it's something that I think more people in academia need to hear. Mm-hmm. Or because it seems like sometimes it seems like a a really good uh, career track. Um, and it can be, it absolutely can be. But I think that the emphasis is if you've done an advanced degree, then you should work in academia. You should continue down that path. And it's not necessarily the best way to, to get what you, what you need out of your passion. Mm-hmm. And, and also, it's not always the best way to offer what you have out to your community, like both your local community and, and larger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that that was similar, you know, feelings and, and thoughts that I had in my graduate degree and, you know, speaking to my peers during my graduate degree was always this, a, if you're doing a PhD or, you know, master's, but a PhD largely, yeah. and you then leave academia, it was still viewed as some kind of failure, yeah. you know, like like you dropped out, like you left or something. And it was like, I was the one, you know, because partway through my PhD, I realized that I was more interested in learning about science and talking about it than I was actually doing the science. So I was already like, you know, planning my exit. I was just like, why do we have this, you know, this feeling that, that, that that's what it is and that if you're not, you know, going for the tenure track position or the big research grant or something like that, that you've somehow failed. And then it is like to do things like what you're doing, Matt, you know, maybe people would look look at that as a little like, well, you know, that's a cute little hobby, but, are, you know, maybe you're wasting your time. Did you ever feel, did you ever get any of that sort of pushback as you yes. were doing it? Yeah, okay. Absolutely. That was the story <laughs> of my life for about five years. Um, at the beginning of my PhD, my advisor said, it's basically not worth my time unless you end up with a career in academia because he had to invest you know five years in training me as a research scientist Mm -hmm. and i i realized pretty quickly that i had much more uh it was much more rewarding for me to do outreach and to communicate Mm -hmm. with people than to focus on a very very small problem um that i was you know tied to for what seemed like an eternity and uh he he saw that so my advisor was was very supportive over time mm-hmm. but no matter how supportive he was in the later years I still you know I, I still couldn't shake that feeling that I was kind of doing something wrong and in the wrong field and mm-hmm. I, what I wanted to do wasn't going to be appreciated and felt like I was stuck on that path mm-hmm. so it took um as soon as I um kind of went full steam into this into the sonification, the music of astronomy side. Um, my advisor completely got it at that point. <laughs> that was the, the right thing for me to do. Yeah. But it's, it took me years to get over that that feeling. Yeah, no doubt. But once you gave him an example of what it was they were doing, it's like, oh, I get it now. Now I see the connection. Yeah. Yeah. He had to hear it, really. It yeah. What it he had to have that emotional reaction to, to what it was. Yeah, right. Um, then the, the one, th- another kind of a follow-up, I guess, on this sort of point is, uh, this is the other thing in academia that, that I heard a lot, um, you know, again, even being involved in a program that was specifically, you know, had money set aside and a mandate for, we're going to get our grad students and our labs to do outreach. There was a lot of pushback from certain, you know, I will say generally the older professors, in the groups that are like, why, why should we bother? Like, why, why do we care to get the, this, our science out to the public? Most people won't understand it. Like, what's the, you know, what's the point? And so I'd be curious to, Lucy, you've kind of touched on why it's beneficial to communicate science, but Matt, maybe what's your sort of, like, what would be your rebuttal <laughs> to that as a, someone that's in the university system, but also doing all this great outreach stuff? Uh, well, you could always say that our research public is publicly funded. And right. It relies on the public understanding what we do and, and seeing the value in it. Um, but really, uh, I think all of those kind of jaded scientists that, that have that opinion that outreach is kind of a waste of time and takes you away from research, I 
think they they've kind of lost something. And so I would just try to remind them of you know why they they got interested in science in the first place. Because there was a stage where they weren't experts in their field, and they were still incredibly excited about understanding something or about the mysteries of the universe. And everybody else is in that same position they were in when they first started down that path. And so I'd want to um, encourage that and support people in that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you you always hear that research is publicly funded, so we need to. But I'm always I'm always a little you know skeptical sometimes of like, well, how much we're really going to change people's opinion with sort of outreach program like broad outreach programs are we really going to get like a whole everyone just sort of one day realize oh this is something we really want to fund and we're going to fund it a lot more i i don't know but i think i like what you said there where it's more about not only speaking to the jaded people but then to the to the people you know you're drawing more people in to what you're doing you know uh maybe they're not gonna you know fund it more or something like that but maybe you're gonna recruit more researchers that will then go on and make the next great discoveries or something and maybe those people will be more uh less rigid in their thoughts about <laughs> about these kind of things but of course, um, even, if they, even if they don't go into academia it still feels like our duty to to make what we've learned and our searches uh, accessible to everyone Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just seems like a human right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's public knowledge, right? Like it's so it should be it should be available to the public and not everybody consumes information or understands information in the same way. So it makes sense to make it available in a lot of different in a lot of different ways. I would think, too, that also just for, you know, your own personal sanity as you're going through you know rigorous research program or something like this or even you know lucy you kind of mentioned some of this too it's like this is what you want to do so you know i blend the two passions that i have together and then that way it's you know you i think would become a better artist or a better researcher or something because of that yeah, yeah. um here's a bit of a wacky one for you because if Trappist, let's say, is the potential that we can find life. So let's say we're thinking about life in the universe. Would you think that music and dance would be a way that we could communicate with an alien species? Because I'm assuming they're not going to speak English. Right. <laughs> or maybe they've been living off our reruns that are like being projected into the, into the <laughs> What do you think of that just as like a, you know, as sort of the, the universal language, we'll say? Um, yeah, it definitely seems more likely we could communicate through music than through any kind of verbal language. Um, that That's at least how it works among different cultures on Earth. Right, yeah. That's a, a big open question, though, is how yeah. universal music actually is. Um, it seems like, you know, other species on Earth use music to some limited extent and communicate at least mm -hmm. patterns of sound mm -hmm. they definitely do that and so i would not be surprised at all if that's that's um a universal for any kind of life living in an atmosphere mm -hmm. yeah i guess you'd have to have the capacity to hear sounds and at what level and things like this but movement and dance also I'll... yeah well it seems like sound sound and motion are ubiquitous so it's a yeah, it's a question of how long it would take to to understand the purpose of what the, what the sounds are and what the motions are. But mm -hmm. it's certainly I mean we see we see this on our planet as well when people don't speak the same language. Often, like hand gestures become incredibly important and mm -hmm. and. Um, even when they're not sort of codified hand gestures, just that you can tell a lot by the way, I mean, that's why I do what I do. You can tell a lot about the way, about something by the way it moves, by the way a body moves. It communicates a lot, even if you can't come up with your own language, like verbal language for it. You Again, you get that feeling. You, you understand if somebody's moving with a certain intention. This is what we do all the time on the street when we're passing people, you, you're making all sorts of decisions about your safety, your your way of navigating based on really small 
um, aspects of of uh, motion. Mm-hmm. Whether they're um, there's motion like motion with agency or not, your mm-hmm. brain is really sensitive to that. Yeah. So we have to be able to detect whether something's moving uh, non-inertially, like they have a you know mind of their own, some direction. And so in our yeah. brains, we're set up to to distinguish life and non-life by precisely how they move. It's not even a yeah. something you're really aware of. No. No, no, no. Yeah, cool. Very fascinating. So when this project is complete, is there, you have the music, Matt, and then you're, the performances are ongoing. Is there going to be a way, is it going to be recorded? It will be there, you know, is there a way to see it for people outside the Toronto area? And maybe you could also just let people in the Toronto area know sort of what's happening, where you're going to be, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that we opened the show last night. Okay. Why my voice sounds a little grumpy today. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it runs until Sunday. Dance in, in Canada, in Toronto in particular, we have really short show runs. It's mm-hmm. th- Most of the time it's two or three performances. I managed to squeak four out of our schedule. Um, but it is, being, it is being filmed and we'll uh, definitely make that. I'm not particularly... Uh, proprietary about my my videos I oftentimes put things up on Vimeo and they're absolutely public and and I'm happy to share that there's also a lot of photography um, streaming out right now we've had three different photographers in on the project and just yesterday during our dress rehearsal um, one of my very uh, longtime uh, photography collaborator uh, came in and we so we have a, a lot of really beautiful uh, imagery sound uh, sadly but uh, but definitely captures the the feeling of the sound as well as the lighting design which has also been a really important component obviously to uh, a show that's about light and space mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is there any uh early indication on what's like do you get a lot of scientists coming to the show or is it generally just people interested in science or interested in dance or you know what i don't i last night uh because it was opening night um there were a number of scientists that i had interviewed that Mm -hmm. that uh, came to the show we've been doing a lot of outreach trying to connect with um uh, the science departments, at, particularly at the University of Toronto and and beyond, and some other. There's a, a conference going on in Toronto right now called I think it's Women in Science and Engineering uh, conference. So we've reached out to them. Uh, I don't know how many uh, scientists have come, but they they were actually my target audience um, for advertising. We really wanted to get. There's a certain crowd that will always come to dance, and there's a certain amount of followers of Blue Ceiling Dance. They will always come. But mm-hmm. I was really interested in in getting more people from at least interest who are interested in science or are people who work in science out to the shows, particularly to talk to them afterwards and say, well, what did you see? What did you feel about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see. To get that peer review. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And so then, Matt, what's sort of next for you? What sort of projects do you have on the go, and where do people go to, to see them? Well, uh, all of my work is at is posted at system-sounds.com. It's my website. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a number of projects with NASA this year. So, for instance, they're, they're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, and so they invited us to take all of their data on the Earth, which is more than people realize. They've got dozens and dozens of missions dedicated to studying the Earth's climate and geology. And, and they said, take all of that and communicate that through sound. <laughs> so, it's very open-ended. Just that little <laughs> thing. It's uh, kind of terrifying. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's one of the big projects this year. OK, exciting. And so then for, for Blue Ceiling, what's next? Do you have any ideas, any topics that you're going to tackle next? More yeah. space or? Uh, well, definitely more science. Uh, the next the next three projects uh, are sort of planned. We don't know when they'll pan out, but mm-hmm. uh, one is looking at the, the neuroscience behind rage. Um, another is uh, exploring how we might embody the, the six 
most abundant elements in the human body. We've done some initial research on that. It actually wound up being pretty funny. Uh, looking, we spent a lot of time on on Google and Wikipedia looking at molecular structures and and then trying to create those with their bodies, which was quite <laughs> hilarious. So it might be our first uh, comedic work. <laughs> and then a third uh, a third one that is like the least formed, but we're definitely going down this line um, was inspired by uh, Lee Smolin's. Uh, he's a uh, theoretical physicist who's he's American, but he lives in Toronto uh, primarily. Um, but his most recent um, book, and now the name of that book has escaped my mind, which is terrible. I can't remember it either. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it was looking at different different theories of of uh, our concept of time, and also oh, it's Einstein's Unfinished Revolution. That's okay. the new book. And I think he's he's trying to take on uh, quantum physics and Oof. deconstruct it a little bit. Um, but one of the things he talked about a lot was uh, empty branches in the, in the theories of multiverses and things like that. And I, I saw a strong correlation between the imagery of empty branches and um, our sort of ecological concerns about uh, how birds are are affected by climate change these days so not exactly sure what that's going to look like but we're trying to like take the two ideas of empty branches and and put them together but wow it'll take me years to unfold all of that all of that <laughs> business but sounds yeah. like a lot yeah sounds like some pretty deep some pretty deep topics there but really really fascinating um Hopefully. before i let you both go then i will ask what for each of you what is your like if you could have one answer to a question about the universe instantly answered you could know it what would it be what's your what's the one thing you're dying to to know about the universe i can give you mine but i don't Please want to do. tip it off <laughs> <laughs> well mine for sure would be life you know, is there is there life out there, and and what what does that look like? That would be one for me. That's a big one. Yeah, it's hard to top that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say something much less interesting, which is the the mysteries of dark matter and dark energy. That is definitely not less interesting. That's <laughs> yeah. something I've talked about on my podcast before, and something that still boggles my mind. But it's it's one of those ones that you think that if we do reconcile that, figure out what that is, that's just going to open the doors to so many more avenues and so many more understandings. So that's that's a big one. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's that's definitely a, a one of the big ones for me too. Dark matter, dark energy. Trying to wrap my brain around that. Also, this based on something my my son asked me the other day got me down a a rabbit hole or a black hole uh, was which was like what what happened right before the big bang <laughs> right uh what made the stuff that made the big bang happen I'm like yeah i don't know i don't know how to answer <laughs> that he's only 10 it's a little deep for <laughs> morning with a 10 year old <laughs> yeah but i mean that's sort of the you know the beauty of science right is like there's certain things that I maybe there you know no matter how much you know it just sort of lets you realize there's so much more that you don't know, Absolutely. and so will we ever will we ever figure it all out? Probably not, you know. But that's also the beauty of it, right? Like without that chase, without that mystery, what would life be? And then, like I said, I just love that you guys are taking those sort of feelings and then putting it with art, putting your art into that. It's really, really great. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for for reaching out and for coming on and having this chat. It was a re it was a real pleasure. And whenever you have something else that you you got going on or you want to talk about, please you know let me know.
Well, all right, there we have it. Uh, lovely little chat there. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, and like I said, inspirational for the people that are doing science and or art and have been told or thought that the two don't mix. Um, again, many thanks to both Lucy and Matt. Um, you can find them, follow them. Uh, Lucy is at Lucy Blue Dance on the social medias, or you can check out www.bluecealingdance.com. Matt Russo is at Astro Matt Russo. That's Russo, R-U-S-S-O. Um, and his websites are at, are, sorry, astromattrusso.com and system-sounds.com so do check them out um, definitely worth a follow um, I'm excited to see what kind of projects they are um, going to produce in the future they, they mentioned a few at the end of the, uh, the, end of the episodes there so um, I'm definitely following them uh, on our social medias and which are of course at bbamperdon and at to Brad for you. Um, give us a follow, give us a like, uh, a rate, a comment. It, everything helps. Get in touch if you have uh, interesting stories, if you want to be on, if you, there's something you want to know about. Um, happy to, happy to investigate. Um, as always, thank you to the Freak Motif for the music. And basically, I think that's it. Until next time. Thanks again to Lucy and Matt. Thank you all for listening. Bye now.